0: Usually, we enjoy when we have to replace something. Unless something has very significant meaning that has a historical value for us, we typically enjoy when we get to replace something that we possess. Uh, Because we think, and it's true, oftentimes we replace it with something better, a newer thing. Uh, If your car gets hit and it's it's declared... um, Totaled, uh, you most likely will get another car, a replacement, and most likely that replacement will lo- will be a little better, right? Uh, sometimes uh, we get new things or replace them because we have just outgrown the old. It could be clothes, it could be toys. If children are just growing beyond uh, beyond uh, the toys that they used to have when they were younger, sometimes we get new things because. The old one broke. It's no longer functioning the way it's supposed to. An oven, a microwave, a tool in your garage. And we replace things because the the, the ones we used to have just no longer work the way they were supposed to. This morning, I want us to look at a replacement. The replacement is not an oven. It's not a microwave. It's not a car. It's not a toy. It's a temple. We're going to look at the theme of Jesus being the new temple. Would you open God's word this morning to John chapter 2. I'll be reading from verse 13 to verse 22. John chapter 2 verse 13 to 22. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to grab one of the Bibles provided in chairs in front of you. Uh, Take it home with you. We'd love for you to have a Bible if you don't have one. In those few Bibles, the passage that we have just announced is found on page number 887. We'd love for you to open God's Word and follow along uh, as we read Scripture. John chapter 2, verse 13 to 22. Here's the word of the Lord. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, when therefore he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus spoken. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you bow with me in prayer. Asking God to bless the preaching of his word. And our hearts as we hear. Father. As we approach your word. As we approach a revelation you have given us. In Jesus Christ and through him. Father we pray that you give us hearts now. That are ready and open to hear. Ready to receive this truth. And Father we pray that you would enable us to respond to it. In a, way, in a way that glorifies Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. As we enter the Easter season. The Easter week this week. It is appropriate for us to consider. And to focus on Jesus' self-understanding. Of what he was accomplishing. Through his death. And through his resurrection. There a number of significant meanings that we can look at when we consider what Jesus understood to do when he was looking to go to Jerusalem to be crucified and then to be raised from the dead. One of those meanings that Jesus had very clearly in his mind is that Jesus would replace the temple. That Jesus will take on in his body the role that the temple had in the Old Testament. This passage we have just read is divided in two big parts. The first section, when Jesus cleanses the temple, that's in verses 13 through 17. And the second section, where Jesus speaks to the religious leaders about destroying the temple. When he says, destroy this temple. Uh, these two sections bring out two big points about what Jesus is, and what Jesus, what, about who Jesus is and what he does. Jesus, the first point, Jesus is zealous for the temple. Jesus is zealous for the temple. The second point we will look at, Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the true temple. And because he's, a, he's zealous for the temple and because he's the true temple, he is the new temple. So this morning we're going to look at these two points in this passage Jesus is zealous for the temple. Now, the temple cleansing is a special sign that Jesus performs, a sign that has special symbolism and special significance. First of all, just remember, we're in John chapter 2. You say, why is that significant? Because the beginning of the chapter uh, shows Jesus performing his first sign to the disciples when Jesus turned water into wine and Jesus showed that he is the better bridegroom. In the the book of John, Jesus is going to make signs, not just to amaze people, but to actually communicate through those signs what Jesus is himself. The signs that Jesus makes in the gospel of John are all laden with with symbolic meaning that reflect who Jesus is. So the question we ask ourselves here, this is a second sign. What does this sign say about Jesus? Well... In the book of Malachi, God tells his prophet the following words. It's it's the words that we have read earlier in in our service. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. Later, Malachi says, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Jesus is coming to his temple. And the first thing he does in the Gospel of John when he comes to his temple is that he is beginning an act of purification. Of cleaning out what had gone wrong in the temple. Jesus is coming to his temple and he purifies the worship that is going on in the Jerusalem temple. For the worship of the temple had become polluted. The people of Jerusalem and of Israel allowed merchants... To fill the temple with their animals. Now, to be fair, let's try to understand this scenario as charitable as we can. These were not animals just for their fun. These were animals for sacrifice. When the Jews um, came to Jerusalem and they were called by God to bring an animal sacrifice uh, for their sins, um, instead of bringing the animal from tens of miles away and carrying it with you to Jerusalem, it was much easier to carry money in your pocket and just buy an animal in Jerusalem and then sacrifice it there. the, The journey would be a lot easier to do this. You get the logic, right? makes total sense. But then they did another step of improvement, another pragmatic improvement. Instead of going to the market which was several blocks away or several streets away or on the other, other side of town in Jerusalem and buy the, the animals there and then have to work through the traffic of the small streets in Jerusalem and bump into people, all the people who were there to do the same thing as you were. Why go through all that trouble? The merchants had an idea. Why don't we just bring the produce right here in the temple so you don't even have to go across town to get your animal? We can all do it here. It's a one-stop Shop, you know, you you do everything there, all you need to do, just show up to the temple, you will do it all there. It's so convenient, pragmatically makes sense. Why would you not do it? In the process of giving in to pragmatic decisions which made really good sense both to the sellers and to the customers. In the process of being happy that they thought they improved their worship, that it's just working more smoothly, they actually polluted the worship of the temple. Because the focus on trade, the noise of the commerce, began being louder than the silence and the thanksgiving and the joyfulness that it was supposed to characterize. Not the transaction, not the trade. But the worship of God. Apparently the Jewish leaders. Missed an important clue from the Old Testament. From the book of Zechariah. One of our Sunday school classes is going through right now in the book of Zechariah. The very last verse. The very last verse of the book of Zechariah. Has a promise. And that it, it, it speaks about the time when God will refine the worship of his people. And the promise in Zechariah 14.21 says, And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Written black and white. And you wonder, how did they miss it? How did they allow the merchants to, to start occupying the temple? When in the promise of the day when the Lord will come, He says, no traitor will show up in my house. No traitor will be found in my house. When God comes to sanctify his people, there will be no traitors in the house. But apparently, they missed it. And I don't understand that logic. I'm not sure how. Was it because they failed to read the scriptures? Was it because they failed to say, I'm not sure if this applies to us today. You know, when the Lord wants to do it, he'll do it. Until then, let's just make sure we... We do it well here. We do it the way we like it. Friends, there are times when we turn the worship that ought to happen in the gathering of the church into something else. It's easy to think about the church gathering more like a a social club, a place where we make friends. It's easy to evaluate a church only based on how easily someone can form relationships. Now, don't get me wrong. A a congregation should be a, a, a gathering of people who love one another who are open to extend love to one another that is that's part of what the word of god says but if all we care about or all we evaluate a church is based on whether or not we can easily form relationships well we may be going in the wrong direction or it's easy to evaluate a church based on whether or not it has all the bells and whistles that make us make us comfortable and not consider whether or not a church actually a church gathering whether or not it actually leads us into the worship of God. Some months ago, I spoke to a lady that I occasionally see at a nearby Starbucks. And uh, at some point in the conversation uh, with her, she told me that she used to go to church and she stopped going to church. And I asked her, so would you mind telling me, what what was it that caused you to stop going to church? And she said, well, I'm I'm a real estate agent. And uh, another Christian told me that I should be going to church so that I can make connections that help me get more customers for my business. And I said, I'm done with that. I I don't want to have to do anything with that kind of church. Jesus came to his temple and found it filled with noise, the noise of commerce. And he cleans it out in a very visible and disruptive way. Friends, I wonder if we realize that Jesus is not characterized by niceness in the story. If you were to be in the temple on that day when Jesus did this action, and you went to do a little survey, a little poll, a little conversation with the money changers and the animal traders, and asked them what they thought about Jesus, they they would not give you a happy answer. Why not? Because Jesus disrupted their selfish, greedy plans. Jesus was holding a whip in his hand. And that is not a picture that we, even today, like to dwell on. Jesus turning over the tables of the money changers. Disrupting the economy of the temple. It seems unloving. It seems disturbing. But he did it because... These characteristics have compromised the worship of God. Friends, this tells me an initial impression is that Jesus is more concerned about our true worship of God than about our convenience. And if something threatens to display our focus on the worship of God, Jesus would dare to disturb it and take it out. Now, let me ask you, is this the kind of Jesus that you are willing to follow? Or would you rather follow a Jesus who would never do anything besides being nice? You know, the, the gospel according to niceness. If you follow the, the latter, that Jesus would never do anything that, would, that is not considered nice, if you follow that kind of Jesus, just accept, or at least acknowledge, it's the Jesus of your own imagination. It is not the Jesus we see on the pages of Scripture. Think about what is it in your life that might threaten you to displace your focus on the worship of God. Think about the things that may be good in themselves, in their places, but not when they actually get so close to the the worship of God that we actually choose one for the other. Think about things in our society that just encroach upon us. Let me just mention a few. Some of them may hit more home to us than others. Sports activities, especially as sports become a bigger deal on Sundays. Just consider that. Or think about needing to uh, or feeling the need to be tied up with all the homework. If you're a student at UT, on, on, UT, on the campus at UT and there's so much to do, like, I got I to gotta stay home and just study. I can't, I can't do the meet with the Lord together with his people because I got to study. Or think about, and by the way, I'm not saying that, that you shouldn't study. Don't, you know, if, if you get a bad grade on your report card this semester, please do not tell your parents to listen to the sermon and tell them that this is why. It's possible that you have been lazy on Friday and Saturday and throughout the week, and you're just using Sunday as an excuse. Um, what about social relationships? When we are more concerned with how others view us or what status we have in the church, are you tempted to view the church gatherings as as merely organized religion or as a means of furthering your self-centered hopes? There's so many ways that can distract us from the focus of the true worship of God. Is it possible that Jesus wants to do something in your life that may have the appearance of disturbing things, but he wants to do it to help you recover the true worship of God. Now, the temple cleansing appears in the Gospels, in every one of the Gospels. It's it's one of the few things that actually overlaps between all four Gospels. The three evangelists, the other evangelists besides John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels, they place the cleansing of the temple at the end of Jesus' ministry, In the week right before the crucifixion. John places it at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. John makes very clear. there's Jesus goes to the the Jerusalem uh, uh, temple for the Passover three times in three different years. Um, And it's clear that John makes a temple cleansing to be separate or different than the other three. And there's various theories, theories about that. It is very possible and likely that actually Jesus cleansed the temple twice. At the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. And we're dealing in this particular passage with the first cleansing that, of the temple that Jesus did. It's, it's not as bad of a cleansing as a second one. In, in the first cleansing here, Jesus just accuses the people for trading or transforming, turning the, the temple into a, a house of trade. Well, that may sound bad, but... It's not as bad as, as the accusation Jesus brings at the end of uh, at at his ministry when he says, you have turned the temple into a den of robbers. It's a lot more significant. What we see here in John is there's a different emphasis that John brings out with this particular cleansing. We have more details in John than the other three Gospels about the cleansing. And the details tell us what this cleansing is about. In John's gospel, the cleansing of the temple tells us an important detail about Jesus. In doing the cleansing, we are told here in John 2, and the only place where this is brought up, is we're told that Jesus did it as a way to fulfill or as a way to do what was written in Psalm 69, verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me. In Psalm 69, David was crying out to God, Because his enemies were more than the hairs of his head. David's zeal for God's house led him to have such enemies and to be in such difficult trouble. Now in John's gospel, we are told that Jesus was fulfilling the pattern that David had experienced. In other words, Jesus was fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures by living out the pattern that God revealed in David's own life. The disciples later remembered that Jesus' cleansing of the temple was actually fulfilling the saying. Look at verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. We don't know exactly when the disciples remembered that it was written, this, and it, it fit, and Jesus fulfilled it. We know at the end of the passage that the disciples understood the events of the cleansing of the temple only after the resurrection of Jesus. It's only after his death and resurrection that, that all the veil was torn apart and they realized, oh my goodness, now we understand what Jesus was doing when he cleansed the temple three years ago. It all made sense, but only after the death and resurrection of Jesus. The disciples came to realize that the cleansing of the temple Was not just a sign of Jesus' zeal. I mean, that is very clear in, in in the words themselves, but it was also a sign that actually Jesus was replacing and surpassing some of the key features of Israel's history: King David and the temple. David was zealous for the temple. He had enemies because of that. Jesus surpassed David in his zeal. For his zeal for the temple, Jesus' zeal for the temple consumed Jesus, not simply to the point of having enemies, as David did. It will consume Jesus to the point of actually being killed, unlike David. You see, Jesus was reliving the story of David. Not only was he fulfilling it, but he surpassed it. He did it with David. This was a sign for the Jews. But in it, in this sign that Jesus was reliving the story of David, being the the greater than David king, Jesus actually shows another sign. He's not only surpassing, replacing, fulfilling, and surpassing King David, he's actually replacing, fulfilling, and surpassing the temple. That King David wanted to build for God. When Jesus is asked in this story, what sign, what sign are you making that gives you the authority to cleanse a temple in this way? Jesus gives them a sign. But they don't get it. Actually, the cleansing of the temple was itself a sign, but they didn't get it. And they failed to look at the scripture and to understand from scripture what Jesus was doing. So they say, because they were faithless in the scripture, they said, give us a sign. Not that somehow that would help their faith, because they were faithless at this point. Jesus, nevertheless, gives them a sign, even though it's an enigmatic sign. Uh, uh, They don't understand it yet, and understandable. But the sign that Jesus gives them communicates a clear message that Jesus is a true temple. How do we see that? When Jesus is answering to the Jews and gives him a sign, he says in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now at the time Jesus spoke, the temple had been in the process of being built. Up to that point, it had been 46 years since Herod was building up this temple. It was still not completely finished. It was still going on. But Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. Now, If we are talking here merely physical temple, the Jews have a good response back. It makes total sense. They say it's taken 46 years to build it. And you will raise it up in three days? That seems absurd. Understandably so. On a human level, we can totally understand why the Jews have dismissed Jesus' answer. But Jesus' answer is not absurd. It was enigmatic. Jesus' words proved to be true in a way that was only understandable after his death and resurrection. Because Jesus, we are told very clearly in verse 20, was not speaking about the temple of his of the physical temple, but was speaking about the temple of his body. And by speaking about the temple of his body, Jesus was not just trying to give a clever answer, to try to get out of a difficult question. No, Jesus really meant that the temple of his body will replace the temple that he was sitting in in that moment. It's not the first time when God disassociates himself from the physical temple built by stones. Even though God gave the, or, or God gave the instructions to David how to build up, and Solomon eventually built up the, the temple in a way that matched the tabernacle in the Old Testament, even though God was fully involved in and saying, I will make my dwelling with you in this temple. God God promised to be in the temple, uh, to be among his people. But because of the sin of of God's people, even after the temple was being built, God pulled out his people, took him out of the land, took him into exile in Babylon. And the book of Ezekiel, in the first ten chapters of the book, recounts a slow Motion of how the glory of God departs from the temple that they had in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 11, God says the following to the people who, whom he has exiled in Babylon, Ezekiel eleven sixteen, 16, Though I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Know what that means? God says, I don't need a physical temple to be your temple. I will be a sanctuary for you, my exiled people. This happened in the Old Testament. And Ezekiel is not the only place. The, the ending of, of the book of Isaiah, chapter 66, the last chapter. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. In other words, and he goes on in the rest of the chapter and says how the worship at the temple in Jerusalem had become corrupt. And God says, I don't need a building. To dwell in. I'm looking for those. Who are humble and contrite in spirit. And tremble at my word. Among those I will dwell. You see the Old Testament has given us. Hints. That God does not need to associate himself. With a physical temple. Any longer. So here. Jesus. Speaks enigmatically. That the function of the temple. Will no longer be carried out through. What happened in physical stones building up this big edifice, big building. But that the function of the worship that was going on in Jerusalem would happen through another temple. And it would be not stones, but flesh, the body of Jesus. But everyone who heard the words of Jesus at the time totally missed it. The leaders missed it. Even the disciples missed it. John tells us that the meaning had become apparent only after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 22, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, what does this mean for us? I want us to understand why is it significant for us to get the fact that Jesus replaces, fulfills, and surpasses the temple. In the Old Testament, the temple had a number of key functions. I'm not going to review them all. If you would like to know more about that, I would like to recommend to you a, a book uh, written by Dr. Paul Hoskins, Jesus as the Replacement of the Temple in the Gospel of John. But I want to mention just two of the functions of the temple that Jesus fulfills, replaces, surpasses in his body. You see, the Old Testament temple was the place where God came to dwell among his people. The temple in the Old Testament times was... Uh, The place where God would meet with people on one ground, on one primary ground. On the ground that blood would be shed for the sins of God's people. The sins that separated God's people from God. The temple was the the central place of, of, of enacting or bringing the sacrificial animals. Because only on that ground... On the ground of, of blood being shed for sin, was God able to come and dwell with the sinful people. Only on that ground was God able to bring His sinful, rebellious people come into His presence. And He would not consume them because of His holiness. The temple was the, the place where God would meet with His people in a special way. Because the temple was a place where animal sacrifices were brought to the Lord for the sin of God's people. When Jesus describes that the place of worshiping God had been corrupted at the temple, rightly so, the trade commerce affected the very notion of bringing sacrifices to the Lord. And instead of focusing on, on the worship of God, people were fo- focusing on what kind of deals they made, or how, how they were able to get it better and quicker and just be in and be out and go, right? Right? And Jesus says, you missed the point of why these sacrifices were there. You totally missed the worship of God. And Jesus describes his body as a temple. Because it would be in his body that a better sacrifice would be brought. It would be in his body that a better worship would be made available. It is by the shedding of His own blood that Jesus would provide the ultimate sacrifice. So that after His death, there's no more need for any sacrifices, any animals to be slaughtered. There is no more need to go to a Jerusalem temple to worship God and feel like that's where you're closer to God. There's no more need of that. Jesus makes it very clear just a chapter later in chapter 4 when He speaks to the Samaritan woman. And she asked, where should we go to worship? The temple in Jerusalem or this other temple? And Jesus says, a time will come when the true worshipers will worship neither on this mountain or that mountain. They will worship in truth and spirit. The truth about Jesus. The truth that Jesus is a true temple. Jesus not only replaces the temple in Jerusalem, but he fulfills it and he surpasses it. Because the sacrifice that he brings is so much better than all the sacrifices that had been brought prior to that. This feature of replacing, fulfilling, surpassing shows up quite often in the New Testament for other things as well. Jesus replaces and fulfills and and surpasses not only the temple. He fulfills and surpasses the sacrifices. Jesus replaces, fulfills, and surpasses the priestly function. Jesus replaces, fulfills, and surpasses King David. In this passage, Jesus replaces, fulfills, and surpasses the temple. Because he is going to bring the ultimate sacrifice that will make the worship of God's people ultimately possible. But there's another function the Old Testament had. The Old Testament was not only a place where people brought sacrifices so that the worship of God could actually be made possible. The temple in the Old Testament was also associated with a place from which God will provide abundantly for his people. I want to read to you just a few verses that show that. Psalm 36, 7 and 8. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. The temple. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. In the temple. Psalm 65, 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. And perhaps the greatest Old Testament passage that speaks about the provision of the temple is the book of Ezekiel once again. You want to understand the temple in the Old Testament? Read the book of Ezekiel. The last few chapters, from chapter 40 to 48, Ezekiel presents the promise of a restored temple. Remember, the book started with God leaving the physical temple, his glory departing out of the physical temple. And God promises at the end of the book that he will restore the temple. But listen to what will happen with this restored temple. It says in Ezekiel 47, 12, that a river will come out of this temple, of this restored temple. And listen to what ha- happens to this river that comes out of it. On the banks on both sides of the river they will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail, but they will f- bear fresh fruit every month, because of the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be good will be for food and their leaves for healing. Now, friends, let me make it very clear. There's no physical temple that will ever do this. Jesus is talking here symbolically. He's speaking about an idealized temple from which a river will flow that will provide abundant provision and abundant healing for God's people. In Ezekiel, this temple will be that place of restoration. But this is not talking about a physical Bricks, stone, temple. The Gospel of John, Jesus tells us that He is a true temple. No wonder that in John 4, when He meets a Samaritan woman, He says, I'm the living water. From me flows a river that gives life. No wonder that Jesus in the Gospel of John says, I am the true bread. I am the provision that you need. I am the... I am the, the, the drink that you need to satisfy your soul. Friends, Jesus is taking the, the pictures of the Old Testament. The things that were associated with the Old Testament temple. And he says, I am the one the temple was speaking about. In me, you will have life and life abundantly. Friends, have you ever considered that when Jesus, as a true and new temple... That he is the means by which God satisfies the hungers and thirsts of our soul. Have you ever considered that in Jesus, God provides his abundant provisions? And when we have Jesus, we have all that we need for life and for godliness. What are the implications for us? What are some practical applications as we approach the Easter season? Consider Jesus' understanding, self understanding, that in his body, in his death and resurrection, Jesus replaces, fulfills, and surpasses the temple. Friends, in Jesus we get way more than we could ever get from a physical temple that Old Testament times had. We don't go to a temple, we don't go to Jerusalem. Uh, to take pictures of ourselves in the temple and feel like we're more close to god because look we're in the temple in jerusalem friends when jesus said that he is the better temple why would we go back to to the old beaten car that no longer works when god says this i'm giving you something brand new this is what it was supposed to be from the very beginning why would you go back to the old things that that proved not to work You know, people these days, when some may go to Jerusalem, they like to be baptized in the Jordan River again. Why? To feel like they are redoing what John the Baptist did and somehow feel some spiritual experience. Why would you do that when Jesus is the better river? Why? You know, we have these sentimental things. That if we just could go back to the physical places, there's some more spiritual value in those. No, in Jesus, we get all. Jesus has surpassed the physical realities. Why would we want to go back to that? Friends, if you try to worship God, apart from understanding what Jesus has done, our worship will be empty. People today might say, Well, I like to worship God the way I like to worship. You know, I I have my own thing I like to worship God with. Or in my own way. Oh, how foolish that is. Jesus wants to replace the corrupt man-made worship. Jesus wants to replace it with a true worship. The only way we can come to worship God truly is if we embrace, accept, realize, cling to what Jesus has done for us. It is only as we... Approach God through the temple of Jesus, the body of Jesus, that we can have any hope of having any genuine, true worship. But we cannot worship God outside of Jesus Christ or apart from Him. If you want to grow in your relationship, in your, in your worship, grow in understanding Jesus. Don't think that somehow you grow in worship by just thinking of, of boosting up your feelings. No, we grow in worship as we understand more about the significance of what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection to make possible our worship of God. None of us would be able to claim any right or any ability to meet with God in a worship service had it not been for Jesus Christ who became the true temple. We don't also, we don't bring sacrifices to God in order to deal with our sin. Part of what it means to be a Christian, the key part of what it means to be a Christian is to recognize the only way we can deal with our sin is to cling to Jesus. Turning away from our sin and clinging instead to Jesus. Friends, if you've never done that, if you've never done that, I want to encourage you. Don't leave from this place as thinking that we are just a place of organized religion or organized worship. This organized worship would be totally meaningless and empty if it was not for Jesus Christ who became the temple for us. And as we approach Jesus, as we cling to Jesus, we are able to engage and worship with a living God. So that's why, friends, let me make one last application here. And I know I might step on some toes here because there is an understanding of, of biblical theology uh, out there that is looking for the rebuilding of the physical temple in Jerusalem. And even some Christians get really excited about the possibility that the, the new the, the, the new temple will be restored and a new sacrificial system will be brought about in Jerusalem. Friends, if the conservative Jewish people plan to reinstate the sacrificial system in Jerusalem, it is not out of obedience to God but out of rebellion to accept Jesus as the ultimate temple with the ultimate sacrifice. It should not lead us to excitement but to grief because it shows they are still missing Jesus. Jesus. When the real temple has been given to us, why would we go back to what had been broken and inefficient and limited and temporary? I pray that we might see Jesus as our true and new temple as we worship God.